As we finish our series, A Kingly Gift, looking, come to a sermon I've entitled, The Redeemer That God Supplies. The Redeemer God Supplies. If we were to take a straw poll and go around on the streets and ask a hundred different people, what does Jesus mean to you? We'd probably receive about a hundred different answers. And that's often the case with such a subjective question. It's quite subjective to ask, what does Jesus mean to you? But if we were to ask it in a more objective way, what does Jesus mean? Or who was the Jesus of history? Wise and favored Messiah or chosen one of God. Let's begin by considering that Jesus is the rejected and accepted Messiah. A bit of a paradox. Beginning in verses 33 and going on to verse 35. Remember, his father and mother have taken him to Jerusalem them and said to Mary, his mother, Behold, this child is appointed for the fall and rising of many in Israel, and for a sign that is opposed or spoken against. And then, almost as an aside, and a sword will pierce through your own soul also, so that the thoughts of many hearts may be revealed. Simeon's words now move from something that's almost entirely positive and optimistic. This is what Jesus is going to do. He's going to be a savior. These challenging words of realism, as if to balance out these words of joy that he's already given. To those who reject Jesus, he says, as we're told later on in the New Testament as well, in 1 Peter 2, verse 8, to those who reject him, he's a, a obstacle in their path that they trip over. They, they can't quite figure it out. But to those who receive him, those, are, those individuals are raised up, Ephesians 2, verse 6. Yes, it's as if, in the words of R.C. Sproul, he says it well, he, Jesus, will raise many people up, but he will also be a rock of offense. And people will stumble because of him, and they will fall into greater and greater wickedness, even as we see the religious leaders doing in the life and ministry of Jesus as one instance. And every time they reject this one, the one, the Messiah, Jesus, the sin that they carry will grow greater and greater. It will be magnified over and over. It's the picture that John Bunyan uses in A Pilgrim's Progress, that great classic Christian tale and allegory. And Christian, as he, before he becomes a Christian, although his name is Christian, as he heads towards the cross, the weight of sin on his back gets heavier and heavier and heavier. This is the biblical and Christian doctrine of predestination. The idea that God, in his sovereignty, his absolute control of all things, being both fully knowledgeable of everything as well as fully powerful, he alone can predetermine or prescribe or declare what can and will happen in the events of human history. And we cannot help but see this reality in the life of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. What he is doing is preordained by God. It was determined by the triune God, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, before the world was created, before time, energy, space, matter came into existence. When there was only God, the triune one, he determined what would happen. And he is working out his plan as his Son is sent into the world following the will of the Father. So all of this is guided and directed by God. And just as there was a guiding star, you remember, that led the wise men to Jesus, 
and then, of course, it disappeared. So, too, the star of Jesus, if you want to call it, the star of Jesus or his light would blaze and guide and illumine for a time, but then it would be suddenly cut off. It would disappear. But unlike the star of the wise men, Jesus' star would return brighter than ever, and never again would it be distinguished. And we're told in the last book of the Bible that in the new heavens and the new earth, there will be no need for sun or moon because Christ himself for his truth. He also, verse 35, will reveal many hearts. A sword will pierce through your own soul, Mary, so that the in contact with the living word of God, Jesus, as he was in his earthly ministry, that often brings people's hearts exposed to the light. Hebrews, verse, uh, Hebrews chapter 12, verse, pardon me, Hebrews chapter 4, verse 12, says it this way. The word of God is quick and powerful, and sharper than any two-edged sword. And it divides right down to the very center or core of our being. What that's saying is, as a person comes in contact with the living word of God, Jesus, in human form, or comes in contact with the written word of God, the Bible, it reveals who they are. It cuts and divides so that it opens them up all the way down to the very core of their being. And it exposes who they really are. And we see this in the earthly ministry of Jesus as he interacts with people time and time again. We see what really causes them to tick. What really is going on in their heart? What are they really serving? What does he mean my soul is going to be pierced? I wonder if she thought of that prophecy by Simeon as she watched Jesus die on the cross 30-some years later and saw the soldiers pierce his all the way to his heart. She would go through great grief as well as she watched and sometimes accompanied Jesus as he grew and ministered and then died. And she would no doubt have many questions. And yet, while this promise seems negative, we must balance it out with the first few promises that Simeon and others have given that he will save his people from their sins in the midst of that horrible suffering he would undergo. Secondly, we see that Jesus is the extolled and blessed Messiah, verses 36 to 38. And there was a prophetess, Anna, the daughter of Phanuel or Penuel, it's, it's hard to pronounce today, of the tribe of Asher. She was advanced, in, she's 84 years of age, and that meant she's been a widow for approximately 60-some years. If it's the latter, then she's been a widow for 84 years, and that means she's more than 100 years old, 103, 104, 105, something like that. Either way, because the, the language can be taken either way, it's not a really important point for the purpose of this passage. But either way we take it, we must understand that she is quite old and elderly for that. But she didn't depart from the temple, the Bible says. Instead, she stayed there fasting and worshiping and praying night and day. And coming up at that very hour, she began to give thanks to God and to speak of him to all who were waiting for the redemption of Jerusalem. Jesus is the extolled and blessed Messiah. And Anna gives us this blessing, this uh, praising of this one and of his heavenly father. She was apparently allowed to live on the temple grounds themselves. And there were a few places 
uh, or a few chambers, living quarters we might call them, where people could stay. And perhaps because of her uh, significant age, they didn't want her traveling from her home up to the temple each day, or, what, or just because she was constantly involved there at the temple grounds. Whatever the case was, apparently she'd been given some sort of living quarters there. And there were several such individuals who would have had that. But also she's called a prophetess. What should we make of that? Well, at its basic level, a prophetess simply means that she was a woman who spoke God's word. A woman who spoke God's word. This does not necessarily mean that she was a woman who spoke about the future or made predictions about the future. That's sometimes what we think of if we hear the word prophet or prophetess. And in this instance, it seems best to not understand it that way someone who's telling about the future, but someone who's simply teaching the word of God, in this case, the Old Testament that the Jewish people had at that point in human history. One of the reasons why I think is because we find that until John the Baptist comes for 400 years, and so it would seem a bit odd if Anna should be considered in that but is not mentioned in that way. Also, it would have been quite uncommon for a woman to be a prophetess in that sense, both of teaching God's word and speaking about the future that God had revealed to them. Because in the Old Testament, we are only told of three such women who were full prophetesses in that sense of doing both roles. And so it seems most likely that this woman was not telling about the future, but was simply one who was doing the wonderful function of teaching other individuals, the truth of God that had already been revealed in his word through the first 39 books of the Old Testament as they had it, or as we think of it. But we're told that she's constantly seeking the Lord. She's constantly seeking the Lord in verse 47, or 37, pardon me. Jeremiah 29, 13 gives us a wonderful application of this. It's just one of many passages in the New Testament and Old Testament that say something similar, but it, this one says it directly. Those who seek me will find me when they search for me with all their heart. If you are an individual who has not yet come to know Jesus as your own personal Lord and Savior, you know of him, but you might say you haven't been fully introduced to him, you don't have a relationship with him yet, then there's a wonderful promise in Scripture that if you will seek him with your entire heart, if you will truly search for him, then he will be found by you. Not because he's hiding anywhere, the Bible speaks of see through the eyes of faith and the eyes of Scripture the reality of what is going on around us. It's a bit like a friend of mine who was mostly colorblind. And I remember at university, when we lived in the dormitory, uh, he would often ask myself or another friend, uh, hey, can you help me pick out my, my outfit? We were required to wear uh, shirts and ties five days a week. And so he would need to have something that matched, at least slightly matched. And so he would purposely um, make sure, he would ask some friends, okay, does this tie match with this shirt? Yes, it does, okay. So he'd put that tie on that shirt and he'd have it all set in his closet and a few times some of the guys to play a prank on him would switch them all around and our friend wouldn't be able to notice the difference because he couldn't see the colors. And yet, just a few years ago with modern technology, and we praise the Lord for it, for the first time, through special glasses, he was able to see colors. That's a bit like what it is, or the from being a non-Christian, hearing about Jesus, knowing some facts about Jesus, to then 
She had been seeking him in the proper way at his temple. That was the proper way in the Old Testament and through his word. And she had been worshiping him in spirit and in truth. And we are told if we do the same, although thank the Lord, we don't have to do it at a temple in Jerusalem because Jesus is the new temple. If we go to God directly through Jesus, we too will be found of God. But we also see that Anna praised God and witnessed to others about God. And that's to be the activity of every Christian as well. She praises God for what he has done, and then she invites other people, other people around them on the Temple Mount. Listen. She's essentially doing the same thing she's been doing for decades now. She's teaching the truth of God, extolling it, praising him for who he is, and inviting others to respond and to join in with her. And notice what she says in verse 48. Verse 38, pardon me. She says... Something those who are waiting for the redemption of Jerusalem. What does redemption mean? Redemption is a wonderful... Don't miss this point. If you miss everything else, don't miss what we're about to say. Redemption. Vitally important to understand. By the way, there's this uh, anecdote that was uh, given by a famous preacher. Someone said, um, you know, people weren't listening very well to your sermon. They were getting a little tired. He said, you know, what's the problem? Was the problem in your sermon? He said, no, the problem was with me. I didn't have enough energy. He said, I'm excited about this, but I wasn't conveying that to the people. So instead of prodding the people, you need to prod the preacher. All right, this was a lot easier in the place that I was born, where people would yell out in the middle of the service. This was just kind of part of the culture, and they'd yell out things to tell you if they were with you or not. Sorry, brother, didn't get that point. Could you say it again? Something like that. You kind of know where you're at, but we in our particular culture, everyone is so quiet guys are so quiet. Sometimes I'm like, are they, are they listening? Or what are they thinking about lunch? Who's thinking about lunch? Be honest. All right. I am too. That's okay. All right. Let's jump back into it. Redemption. This is a wonderful biblical doctrine. Redemption means to free someone from bondage. It often involves paying a ransom or a price that ensures that person is redeemed or bought back. The Israelites were redeemed from Egypt, for instance, and we were redeemed, if we are Christian, from the power of sin and the curse of the law, Galatians 3 tells us. We were also redeemed through Jesus, Romans 3 tells us, and we were bought with a special price, the blood of Jesus Christ, the eternal one of God, 1 Corinthians 6. Now, redemption, and here I'm about to read a quote. You know I don't normally read long quotes, but this is an exceptionally good one by J.I. Packer. It's an extensive definition of redemption. Because redemption, although it can be stated quite easily as uh, freeing someone who's in bondage, there's actually much more to it in the biblical frame of reference. And this is an essential doctrine for any growing Christian to understand. And it's multifaceted. So listen to this wonderful definition. Redemption is Christ's actual substitutionary endurance of the penalty of sin in the place of certain specified sinners, through which God was reconciled to them. Their liability to punishment was forever destroyed, and a title to eternal life was secured for them. In consequence of this, they now have in God's sight a right to the gift of faith as the means of entry to the enjoyment of their inheritance. Calvary, where Jesus died, in other words, not merely made possible the salvation of those for whom Christ died. It ensured that they would be brought to faith and their salvation be made actual. The cross saves. 
That is, the redemption that Jesus set out to accomplish in his birth, in his life, in his ministry, in his death on the cross, in his resurrection, the redemption that he set out to accomplish was accomplished and it was properly and is currently being properly applied to all those who respond to it, to all those who have been specified in the eternal decree of God that they will come to saving knowledge and faith of the one he has sent, Jesus Christ. You see, once again, we see the sovereignty of God in all of this. The predestination of God, the determination and the declaration of God of what would happen in human history. Not only that his son would come to give a potential sacrifice, a potential redemption, but that it would be actual, that it would be applied to every single human being that Christ called to himself. And that's why he says to us in the book of John, all those who come to me are called by the Spirit of God through the Father's decree, and all who come to me will in fact be saved and will not be cast out. What a glorious truth of redemption. And she speaks of this. She glories in this reality. Jesus, this child being held by Mary and Joseph, this is the Redeemer. He will bring about that redemption. He will bring about what was promised to Abraham more than a thousand years prior. And we add to this that Jesus is the strong, wise, and favored Messiah. Verses 39 to 40. And when they had performed everything according to the law of the Lord, they returned into Galilee, the region of Galilee, to their own town of Nazareth. And the child grew and became strong, filled with wisdom, and the favor of God was upon him. The law's demands have now been met in this particular instance. And Luke emphasizes this for us at the beginning and the ending of this passage, that Mary and Joseph, and by extension Jesus, although a child, fulfills the law's demands. And so even though he was not what you might call an active participant in this, this was a way in which he was fulfilling the law indirectly through means of the direct action of his parents, yet still it's pointed out to us that from the very earliest age, he is fulfilling all the expectations and the laws of God. And he will continue to do that as he grows in wisdom, as he grows in physical stature, and in favor with God, he will continue to perfectly obey every law of God, every demand of God, not just in the letter of the law, but in the spirit of the law as well. And this is, this is vitally important if that redemption is going to be accomplished. If true redemption is going to take place, and it is not only going to be accomplished, but properly applied to the group that God has declared will be redeemed, then we must have someone who meets all the demands of God's law, who can therefore be the perfect substitutionary sacrifice to die in our place. And that is what is being pointed out to us. This is a glorious truth. One that Anna was right to not only rejoice in, but also to invite others to rejoice in. But this also stresses for us, this growing in wisdom, this growing physically, and this growing in favor of God as he fulfills the law of God. This also stresses for us the complete humanity of Jesus. He was completely human, 100% human. Yes, 100% God as well. But he was like us in that he was fully human. We are told in the book of Hebrews that he experienced all the temptations, the trials that you and I experienced, and yet... In every point where we so often fail, he succeeded. But at the same time, as we hear of this wisdom, this stature or growth, and this favor with God, there's a bit of a deeper meaning, or we might say a, a biblical parallel I want to bring out for us as we draw this to a conclusion. 
First of all, Jesus didn't just grow in strength, human strength. That's true. Pointing out his full humanity, that's absolutely true. But also, we're told in the scriptures that he is in and of himself the strength of God in human form. Philippians 4, verses 11 to 13 says this, I'm not saying this, Paul speaking, because I am in need, for I have learned to be content in whatever circumstances that God brings across my path. I know what it is to be in need, and I know what it is to have plenty. I have learned the secret of being content in, in, in any and every situation. By the way, wouldn't that be a glorious secret to learn for yourself? How to be content no matter what is going on. To be at complete peace in your soul and heart, no matter what is happening in life around you. That can only happen through Christ. And Paul's about to tell us how to do it. He says this, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in want, I can do all things through him who gives me strength. Now that last verse, verse 13, is a well-known verse. In fact, many professional Christian athletes will often quote that verse after they win a game. But oftentimes what's happening is they're quoting it out of context. This isn't saying you can do whatever you want to do, like Nike, just go do it. Lift yourself up by your own bootstraps and accomplish whatever you want because you're a Christian and so God will help you. No, that's nonsense. That's not what it's saying. What it is saying is that under the inspiration of the Spirit, Paul tells us here that he has endured much. He had endured persecution, shipwreck, betrayal, just to name a few. But throughout that time, he had learned the secret of contentment. He wasn't only content when he had what he needed. He learned to be fulfilled or content and at peace even when he was hungry and in desperate need. To say it a different way, he realized that Jesus alone provided that type of strength. Or the strength that Jesus alone could provide allowed for that level of contentment. Through his obedience, Paul had learned that it was Jesus who gave him that strength. And that strength brought him a contentment in all sorts of trials. To say it a slightly different way, Jesus plus nothing equals everything. If you have Jesus and nothing else, as Christians throughout the ages, including Christian martyrs persecuted and killed for the faith, have experienced time after time, if you have Jesus and nothing else, then you realize you have everything. And Paul experienced that. Because Jesus is the strength of God and he applies that strength to us and allows us to be content even in the most trying of circumstances. But he's also the wisdom of God. And we're told in verse 24 of 1 Corinthians 1, Christ is the power or the strength of God, and he is the wisdom of God. You see these first two attributes coupled together again. He is both the strength and the wisdom of God. What is wisdom? Wisdom, biblical wisdom, is the right application of true knowledge or the God-word, or God-focused application of true knowledge. The book of Proverbs is all about that type of wisdom in the Old Testament. And in the book of Proverbs, as well as in other places in the Old Testament, wisdom is personified as if it's a human being. And what we find in the New Testament is, yes, that's exactly right. The wisdom of God is fully expressed not in a list of rules, not in a bunch of Proverbs, not in a bunch of statements, it is expressed most, most fully in the living word of God, the wisdom of God in human form, Jesus. And finally, he exemplifies the blessing and the favor of God the Father. Galatians 3.14 tells us this, In order that in Christ Jesus the blessing 
of Abraham, given so long ago, might come to the Gentiles, that is the rest of the world, so that we would receive the promise of the Spirit through faith. The way that we receive the favor of God, or to put it in a different way, the blessing of God, to have God's divine favor and hand on our life, is we have to receive it through receiving Jesus. He's the one who provides that for us. The promise was given to Abraham, but he never saw it in his lifetime. His son Isaac never saw it. His son never saw it. The 12 sons who became the leaders of the 12 tribes of Israel, they never saw it. Moses never saw it. But they trusted the promise of God. But when Jesus came, we saw it in human form. So the question is, have you experienced the strength, wisdom, and favor of God in his one and only Messiah, his chosen one, Jesus? Humanity's greatest need is for someone to be sent who can fully identify with the human race and yet be more than the rest of us. We don't need another messed up human being. Each of us is messed up enough for ourselves. We need another perfect human being. But of course, you don't fit that bill, and I don't either, and so we have a real predicament. We needed someone who could come and fulfill all of God's demands and provide that redemption, buying us back, causing us to have a relationship with God once again, the relationship that we were created to have but broke off because of our sin, and Jesus is that Redeemer, the one and only. He alone is the wisdom, strength, and true representation of God in human form. If you've never experienced that, today would be a great day to experience that. To go into this new year having a relationship with God, being redeemed, having the wisdom and the strength and the favor of God on your life. And you can do so by responding to Jesus. And if you are a Christian, someone who's already been redeemed and who has already responded to Jesus, are you taking full advantage? And are you truly realizing what Christ has done for you? The wisdom he lived out and the wisdom he offers to you. The strength only he supplies and the favor of God that rests on your life because of what he has done through redemption. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this passage. As we begin, that's our plight as human beings. Sinful, broken, selfish, messed up, incapable of obeying your truth, incapable of living up even to our own standards, much less yours. We acknowledge that in humility and we ask your forgiveness. And I pray that you would specifically apply your redemption through Christ to any of those here who have not yet received it. May they ask you for it and may they receive it with joy. For those who have received it, I pray that you would help us to realize, yes, that Jesus was our fully human substitute, and at the same time realize that he alone, because he was also fully God, was the full expression of the wisdom of God, bringing the redemption of God to the people of God through the strength of God so that we might have the favor of God on our lives. We thank you for all of this. In the name of Christ, amen.